People often ask me, what did you learn from Pat? What did he teach you? I think he taught me to see. Bernie Schein was an educator, and he's been a writer most of his professional life. He was also one of Pat's oldest and best friends. They met in high school in Beaufort, South Carolina. So Pat and I, we were about 19, 18, my senior year. We're walking along the banks, right here. Right here, Beaufort River, right across from the Anchorage downtown, and we're walking along the banks of the river, and we're going to the Little League field, which is at the West End, because we're gonna work on our game, our baseball game. We had our gloves, and we did all this stuff, you know. And Pat stopped and looked out over the river. And he said, my God, Bernie, and he, you know how big he is, and big-hearted, he just held out his hands like he was embracing the universe. Isn't this fucking beautiful? Well, I'd never seen it before. The only thing I'd ever seen about that river and about the sunset or anything else was Dacus's cab. He was the drunken cab driver. We knew to get out the way whenever he was careening down the road. He was the only one in town. And his first cab was down there in the river. And the trunk would jut out at low tide, and we'd swim his kids down there and dive out down there for treasure. You know what? There was a dock that kind of hobbled out into the river like a cripple. And, and we would, so I'm thinking, oh, with the rope swing, where we would swing out over the river, you know? And it was fantastic. But I never once thought that it was pretty, all right? So I looked at it and I'd never seen anything like it in my life. It was for the first time. This is what an artist's eyes, fresh eyes will do for you. He taught me to see. From the podcast production team at Ingredient, this is Pat Conroy's stories. It's a look at his life through the people who knew him best. I'm your host, Tanner Latham. In this episode, we hear about Pat's early adulthood and how he became a famous writer. Here he is giving the commencement speech to the class of 2001 at the Citadel, a military college in Charleston, South Carolina. Class of 2001, listen up. I don't have much time. They don't give you much time for graduation speeches. Pat attended school at the Citadel and played baseball and basketball. He became one of the school's most famous alumni. His experience was the basis of his books, The Boo, The Lords of Discipline, and My Losing Season. Because of various aspects of my character and fate, I did not get to address the Corps of Cadets in the last century. <laughs> there were many years when I thought that Saddam Hussein where Jane Fonda had a better chance of addressing this class than I did. <laughs> In 1979, the year most of y'all were born, I was finishing up the Lords of Discipline, and I tried to think of a line 
or words that would sum up better than anything how I felt and how other people feel about this college. I wanted to be something ringing and affirmative, something true, something that would be true for every person who's ever gone through the long gray line. I came up with this line, I wear the ring. I think it is the best line I have ever written and the best English sentence I am capable of writing. I love that phrase. I love that sentence. 34 years ago, I sat in this field house. My mother and father, my six brothers and sisters, sitting in the audience as your parents are sitting now. My parents, it was their proudest day. My mother wept when I came off that day. And she wept so hard. I said, Mom, what's wrong? And she said, Son, you're the first person in my family who's ever graduated from college. And then you did it at the Citadel. And she said, the best college in America. And I realized that I had come to a place that has etched itself on me, etched itself on my character more than any other place. I have written more about my college than any writer in American history. My third book will be coming out next year. That will be the third book I have written about this college. And I write about it because I cannot keep away from it. I cannot keep the experience. It is so fresh and fiery on my imagination. The fundamentals are that we were classmates from the Citadel in the class in 1967. So we came in together. He came in to play basketball. I came on a football scholarship. So we were both athletes and we knew each other by name tag basically for a while. My name is John Warley. Uh, I am a writer, a full-time writer, having practiced law for 40-some years. And then in the spring of our junior year, we went out for the baseball team. I had been on the baseball team the year before. Pat was trying out for the first time and made the team. And so at a training mess for baseball, um, he sat down at my table and started being Pat Conroy. And I found him very funny. And by the end of the meal, I found him hysterical because he was poking fun at all of the things that I had maybe thought about subconsciously for two years, but had never given voice to. And so Pat had no trouble giving voice to it in sarcastic terms that I just found hysterical. And I remember looking around the table and saying, are you guys listening to this? I mean, does anybody else other than me find this funny? Anyway. It started a friendship that was enhanced by the fact that we were paired as roommates on the baseball trips. And so we spent hours together in white Citadel station wagons with the Citadel stenciled in blue on the side, riding up and down the roads of the Southern Conference uh, that season. 
And uh, that's a lot of time, car time, and then rooming together. We had a lot of time to talk about things. So uh, by the end of that baseball season, I would say we were fast friends and the friendship just built from then on. Pat walked into my store in April of 1973. I had been in business a year and a half. I knew nothing about rare books. My name is Cliff Graubart. Uh, I own the old New York bookshop. At this point in Pat's career, he had published The Boo and The Water is Wide. He was living in Atlanta when he met Cliff. Pat walked into my store as he drove by the store and on his way back from this place. He was writing this novel called The Great Santini. Walked into my store and, and, and very friendly, introduced himself, and he just relished this experience. And he bought a book, came back the next day, because he wrote every day few blocks from the store and on the way home he passed my new store and he had given he gave me this paperback copy of the water is wide and he inscribed on the front cover to a long and enduring friendship Pat Conroy and he dated it and he gave it to me and I have that framed and I said you wrote a book holy shit and I had just come out of New York, you know, I was so raw for the South. And two weeks later, he invited me to his house for a get-together, apparently, with writers. And I remember telling my girlfriend at the time, I'm going to a literary soiree. <laughs> you know, I felt like... Uh, Sylvester Stallone <laughs> going into a library and I, I wanted to bring something because, you know, New York, I'm Jewish, you bring something. So I looked under the kitchen sink and I had somebody had given me a bottle of liquor unopened. So I brought that. Pat says I also brought a box of cake. I must have looked at Woody Allen in Bananas, bringing the cake to the dictator in that Latin American country. And Pat opened the, the bag with the, uh, the liquor. And he looked at it and he said, Saki, you brought me Saki. <laughs> You're Irish, what's the difference? It's booze. Yeah, I didn't even think. That's how what we met. And we hit it off pretty much not around literature and books. We hit it off with humor. We made each other laugh. He brought spice to my life. I wouldn't have met Cynthia had I not met Pat. We got married in Rome, Italy. Because of him. My name is Cynthia Graubart, and I'm married to Cliff Graubart, who was a very long time, very close friend of Pat Conroy's, and thus Pat became a close friend of mine. During the years Pat lived in Atlanta, he published The Great Santini and The Lords of Discipline. 
He also divorced his first wife, Barbara, and about four years later married his second wife, Lenore. They moved from Atlanta to Rome, Italy, where he would write his most successful book, The Prince of Tides. And, as Cliff mentioned, Rome was also where Pat was when he agreed to host his friend's wedding. Here's Cynthia again. So, when Cliff proposed to me, I'd had a brief starter marriage, and I didn't want to have a big wedding with tons of people and seating charts and all the rest. And so I was saying that out loud to friends, and Lenore was in the room, and she said, well, you know, why don't you just come to Italy this summer and get married in Italy? Well, I mean, who wouldn't want that deal, right? So. I broached the subject with Cliff, and he said, well, I don't see why not. And Pat assured us that he was making the arrangements for our wedding. And in Italy, you have to do what's called post the bands, which means your name appears on a list that's actually posted on a column outside from passers-by to read your name and then they can comment if they think there's some reason why you shouldn't be marrying this person. Either you're still married to somebody else or you have other issues. So Pat tells us that the wedding's going to be July 8th and we make our flight arrangements accordingly, coming in a few days ahead of time, right? Cliff and I arrive in Italy with just, oh, you know, all that great expectation you have when you're, when you're, when you're about to be married and all, all that, that anxious excitement and, you know, the planning that's gone into it. Um, and we arrive and, and we go and visit Pat and Lenora at their apartment. And Pat begins to unravel the details and what eventually comes out is that Pat has done nothing. Nothing. I was stunned. Now of course I don't know Pat very well at that point. I didn't know Pat like other people knew Pat. That Pat could tell a darn good story, make one up if he had to, and apparently, that's sort of what happened with our arrangements. I think in his head, he really thought he did something about it, but in fact, he hadn't. And so, during the evening, Pat calls Anne Guerrieri, who was a good friend, and Anne said, well, I'll do my best. She hired a translator, and it took us a very long day and part of a morning going from one bureaucratic office to the next. Lots of lira at each office over, over Pat convincing us that everything had been done. At the end of that day, we still don't know if we're getting married the next day. And we, we walked over to the last official stop. 
where the administrator took a very large ledger book out where thousands of brides and grooms have written their names along with their witnesses. So we all signed in the ledger books and they said that we were going to be officially married at the Campidolio at 11 o'clock that morning. And it actually happened. So Pat ultimately came through for us, but in very typical Pat fashion. It was not as graceful as it could have been, but it was done with great love and affection that once we were there, he knew he had to make it happen. And here I am, 30 years later, still married to Cliff, so whatever magic that was is still happening today. indefatigable sense of humor and it was it was always fun to spend time with him you know always this is the actor michael o'keefe who we heard from in episode one he played the oldest son in the movie the great santini which was the character that pat had based on himself he told a great story about moving from atlanta to rome um when he had moved to rome that he was going to move back here and he was in a little village in Rome, and I'd actually hooked up with him in Rome, as it were, and we had dinner one night, I was there, mainly because I wanted to see him. Um, and he said, you know, he, he lived in this little village square within the city, but it was like a small village, and there was like a fish shop, and a butcher's, and a cheese place, you know, and a vegetable place. And He was sitting in the square, and one of the, sto the shop owners came out and said, is it true you're moving back to the United States? And Pat said, yeah. And he said, oh, this is horrible. It's horrible news. Obviously, we didn't love you enough. We, if we had loved you more, you would never move back to the United States. You would stay here with us in Italy. Let us, give us another chance to love you in a better way. And Pat said, yeah, I remember the day I moved from Atlanta to Rome and I'm pretty sure nobody from the Piggly Wiggly came out to tell me that that they thought I was moving to Rome because we didn't we didn't love you enough. <laughs> Do you mind telling me about how you met Pat? Not at all. It was yeah. in Birmingham. Uh, he came to the uh, Hoover Library festival, writer's fair thing, and uh, he was getting an award. This is Cassandra King, a novelist and Pat's third wife and widow. She casually goes by the name Sandra. At this point, it was 1995, and Sandra was one of Pat's fans. She had wanted to meet him, only she didn't know exactly what he looked like. So then I, over by the refreshment table, start chatting with this man. Turns out to be Pat, and I didn't know. <laughs> so I, uh, I kind of made a, a, a faux pas when we first met, uh, but it, you know, it, it's, it's kind of also indicative of, of our 
whole lot together. Faux pas, because, did you literally say something, or are you just thinking? No, I literally said, uh, uh, because then a friend of mine wandered over as I was chatting with Pat. We were talking about the food, and I was stuffing food in my mouth, and she said, oh, I see uh, you've met Pat Conroy. And I said, oh, my God. And, he, and Pat said, well, not quite. Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> so God. that kind of set the tone, right. you know, right. <laughs> from then on. <laughs> and Pat, and I heard more people say this. Anything else about Pat that that certainly was my experience as well is you felt like you knew him, and you had only been talking. You felt like you knew him all your life. He had this this um, way of, of making, you know, immediately focusing his attention on you and making you feel like you were the most interesting person in the room and nobody else in the room existed uh, for you. Bernie, John Worley, myself, and Pat, and sometimes sort of guest we would meet for lunch over at Griffin Market, really nice Italian restaurant. After we would eat there, I typically would go back to work, but Bernie and, and Pat would often go back and they went through a cigar phase. They, they would go buy you know, one of these Monte Cristos and they would sit on the back porch of Pat's house. Have you seen Pat's house? Oh, it's, it's, it's a gorgeous house and it overlooks the marsh. And they, they would go upstairs and sit on the upstairs porch and they would tell stories and, 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 and smoke cigars. I'm Scott Graber. I'm a small town lawyer. Um, and I've been here in Beaufort since 1971. I also, like many of Pat's friends, I'm a frustrated writer. One day they were doing that and um, they were up on the, and they were talking. And th this is where, I, I, don't, I don't really know what they were talking about, but when Pat and Bernie were talking, there was always animation, intensity, very often raised voices, you know, it was, uh, it was not subtle. There weren't long silences with those guys. But anyway, while, it, while that was going on, while they were on the upstairs porch, Sandra was downstairs having chest pains. Um, so much so that she called 911. 911 comes. Now you have to understand, here they, they turn on the siren, they have the lights, or, or, blinking and spinning. They, they come in the house and apparently, you know, they come busting into the house. Um, um, and m meanwhile, Pat and Bernie are upstairs oblivious to what's going on. 911 packs Sandra into the ambulance and, and takes her to the hospital. In due course, Pat and Bernie come downstairs. They, they look around, they can't find Sandra. Pat has a tendency, or had a tendency, much like me, in, in that he, he, he suspected the worst. And so he immediately runs down the, to the dock, thinking he's gonna see Sandra floating in the river. 
Uh, and now you have to understand there is a certain Keystone Cops element to this in that at, it was low tide and the, and the uh, board going down to the floating dock was almost vertical. So Pat has to crawl down this thing on his hands and knees and he's looking around all the time getting, according to Bernie, hysterical. Running, running around the yard in, in his running around way. Anyway, they can't fight Sandra. It's, 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 and so ultimately, Bernie says, let's call the hospital. And they do. They pick up the phone, they call the hospital, and they say, you know, we're, we're looking for Cassandra Conroy. Is there anyone at the hospital by that name? And whoever answered the phone said, there is, and she's in intensive care. So anyway, more panic. Well, they, it starts to rain. They go out to Pat's car. Pat, at that point, had just bought a brand new Buick. And like a lot of us older people, he had no clue how to operate it. So he's in there initially trying to get it started. Uh, and, and he does, he's successful, but he is never successful in getting the windshield wipers to engage. So picture if you can, Pat driving down the road, head looking, head outside, you know, Sandra, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming, driving down, driving down Rebo Road. To make matters even more hysterical, as they pull up to the emergency room, Bernie says, hey, Pat, you go find a parking space. I'll, I'll run in and I'll see how things are going. So he runs in uh, and is immediately, let, they, they let him go back into intensive care. And he goes back, he finds that Sandra is fine. She's, she's had this episode, but she's sitting up in bed. And they just kind of sit down and begin to chat. Pat arrives and says, I'm here to see my wife. And, and the guy who's at the, says, sir, I'm sorry. Uh, there, one person is allowed in the back. And, and Pat says, I'm her husband. And, and he whips out his wallet and he, he shows them his, his driver's license with his thing. And the guy says, look, uh, I don't make the rules around here, but it's still one person at a time regardless of kinship. So Pat is pacing, not knowing, you know, whether or not Sandra has died or, or whatever. And Bernie and Sandra are, are, are back in the back. And so Bernie said, I, like I said, just spoke to him. He said he, he, when he finally came out, which was about an hour later, Pat, of course, was just climbing the walls um, and uh, uh, for, I, I would say, a couple of days, they, they did not talk. They did not talk. All communication between Pat and Bernie broke down. Country heart. That was the question you asked me is what I was trying to do is how can I make the readers really see Pat to know the person that I knew and loved. And I thought the best way to do that is to talk about Pat 
its uh, relationship with its readers in a signing line. Again, this is Sandra King, Pat's widow. Because I've been to, you know, hundreds of them. All writers have. Um, sometimes you, they're going to have handlers with them. If you're a big-time writer, you have handlers that say, only one book, uh, no personalization. You, talk, you know, as you get in line, you're given strict orders. And I've heard of writers who won't make eye contact you know, with and, and different things like this. And a lot of times it's if you got a huge line, you know, it's, you have to do this. Pets lines always went on for hours. They would usually be out the bookstore, you know, uh, they were always long lines. He would stay to the last person. He would talk to everyone in his, in his line. He would personalize. You know, even if somebody might say, oh, no, that's okay, you've got a long line here. He would say, no, tell me where you're from. Uh, or, or, well, you can sign that to, your mother, to my mother. And he would say, well, tell me about your mother. You know, it was just, it was just amazing kind of, kind of thing. He had to have fed off of that. You know, well, he did. Of course just, he did. I mean, and he stole stories. Yeah. You know, he would right. tell. He's, he's, he he would, and then he would give people credit. I mean, he would say there's there's a, um, a story that he always told about uh, uh, someone in Mobile. Uh, told him they were standing in the Mobile Bay and told him that their, um, I think it was a, a her, her mother always took her down there out at the time when the uh, sun was setting and the moon was coming up, and the mother pretended like she made that happen. And Pat said, consider that story stolen. And he used that in The Prince of Tides. On the next episode of Pat Conroy's Stories, we hear about the enduring influence that Pat had on other people. My name is Rick Bragg. I am one of Pat's one or two million friends and fans. And it's not much more complicated than that. Pat Conroy Stories is produced by Ingredient. I'm Tanner Latham, the executive producer and host. Kelly Libby is the editor and sound designer, and the music was composed and performed by Wes Swing. In addition to the voices you heard, we give a very special thanks to Maggie Shine, Jonathan Haup, and the staff at the Pat Conroy Literary Center. And we could not have created the series without Frank and Amy Lassane. They own and operate the Anchorage 1770, a beautiful inn in downtown Beaufort, South Carolina. That's where we conducted all the interviews. For more information on the series, visit ingredientcreative.com. Thanks for listening.